0: This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women. The desire to be part of a movement, if you will, or
1: part of a framework to prevent the further spread of nuclear weapons is very, very strong. And I would say that the NPT has undoubtedly provided a foundation for nuclear arms control.
0: We feature women who are breaking barriers and shaping the future of foreign policy, national security, international business, and development. I'm Beverly Kirk, the director of the Smart Women Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. This episode of our Smart Women Pony Pathbreakers series examines the nuclear nonproliferation regime. Joining me are Ambassador Susan Burke, the former Special Representative for Nuclear Nonproliferation, who played a lead role in the 2010 Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty Review Conference and Dr. Rebecca Davis Gibbons, assistant professor of political science at the University of Southern Maine and associate at the Project on Managing the Atom at Harvard's Belfer Center on Science and International Affairs. She's currently leading the field with her research on nuclear nonproliferation. Susan and Rebecca, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having us. Thank you for inviting us. Let's start with the Treaty on Non-Proliferation of Nuclear Weapons, or better known as the NPT. It's the Bedrock International Treaty to Prevent the Proliferation of Nuclear Weapons, Promote Peaceful Nuclear Energy Uses, and it aims to achieve complete nuclear disarmament. It's been signed by 190 states, and it came into force about 50 years ago. Some are kind of cynical about it. It is a, a critical treaty, but why do you think it's it's endured as long as it has. Ambassador Burke, we'll start with you.
1: Well, you know, I think there are are a lot of cynics and there are a lot of naysayers about uh, this treaty and other treaties, but my own view, the reason why it's existed so long is it's a dynamic treaty. And since it first entered into force, membership has steadily grown over the years. And if it were not a valuable treaty, you would not continue to have countries joining as parties. And I think we've seen it grow from The earliest days now to 190, I would say, nearly universal. We know who the outliers are on the treaty. And these countries were joining the treaty because, in my view, they recognized the inherent value of supporting the international norm of nonproliferation, and they also recognized the benefits that would accrue to them Through adherence to the treaty. These were security benefits, particularly within their regions, and they would be able to demonstrate to their neighbors that they were not pursuing nuclear weapons. And also, we can't forget the enhanced benefits that the treaty provides to parties in compliance to the peaceful benefits of nuclear energy. And we take these benefits for granted largely in medicine and agriculture, manufacturing, but these are directly as a result of a strong nonproliferation regime. Dr. Gibbons, your thoughts. All right. Well,
2: I I agree with a lot of what Ambassador Burke had to say. I think I would start by just saying that all members of the international community, I think, have an interest in limiting these destructive weapons. So I think we need to start there. And I think it's also true that a majority of states actually do not want to develop these weapons. And so the MPT is a way for them to publicly and credibly make this commitment And so I think that's been very valuable in the international system because it's allowed states to have confidence that their neighbors and adversaries or potential adversaries down the line are not going to build nuclear weapons. And if they start to or they try or they take actions that are contrary to the treaty, it's likely going to be found out, particularly with the enhanced safeguards that we have now, and that they will be pressured to stop. And so I think when some people are cynical about the MPT, it might be because people are cynical about treaties in general. There's a lot of treaties in the international system that don't have the kind of monitoring and enforcement mechanisms that the MPT has. And so in political science, we say some of these treaties that are out there might be considered cheap talk right? You can sign them. So there's a convention against torture, right? So governments can sign that convention. And then there's evidence to show some continued torturing and actually maybe torture more. And so that treaty maybe isn't worth a lot, but that's not what the NPT is, right? The NPT requires countries to sign on to these safeguards agreements that allow international inspectors to come onto their sovereign territory and inspect their nuclear activities. So I think in addition to the benefits that Ambassador Burke mentioned, it's really important to think about the safeguards mechanisms, the mechanisms for uh, if a country is not abiding by the treaty, right, they can be referred from the International Atomic Energy Agency, their Board of Governors, over to the UN Security Council, and there are mechanisms to try to punish states and bring them back in line. So I think there's a lot in this treaty that helps states have confidence in it, and that relates to its longevity.
1: Dr. Gibbons just nailed it, and I think summarizes it beautifully, but. The desire to be part of a movement, if you will, or part of a a framework to prevent the further spread of nuclear weapons is very, very strong. And I would say that the NPT has undoubtedly provided a foundation for nuclear arms control as well. And We don't want to shy away from that issue. I mean, without a reliable nonproliferation regime, it would be much more difficult than it already is to reduce existing nuclear arsenals, and I happen to believe that that's the case. But I would also point out that for the non-nuclear weapon states, this treaty, as a member of this treaty, they have very important leverage with at least the NPT nuclear weapon states, United States, United Kingdom, France, Russia and China, because when the parties come together, they have discussions about, you know, how well the treaty has been fulfilled. And this is the one treaty where you have nuclear weapon states in partnership, if you will, with non-nuclear weapon states. And that's a very important collaboration and important arrangement as well.
0: Ambassador Burke, if I could follow up, you mentioned the original five nuclear weapon states as identified in the NPT. We know that other nuclear states haven't signed the NPT, specifically Israel, India, and Pakistan. North Korea, announced its withdrawal from it in 2003, does that make a difference that there are verifiable nuclear states that have not signed it?
1: It does make a difference because even if the the NPT nuclear weapon states or the P5, is the permanent five, decided to... Eliminate all of their nuclear weapons, which I don't think they would do without some larger agreement with the other nuclear armed states. Even if they were to do that in a theoretical world, you would still have nuclear weapons in the world because you've got these states outside of the regime who have not undertaken a legally binding commitment to pursue nuclear disarmament or to even halt nuclear arms races. So if you look at in South Asia or other countries, they don't have any limits on their nuclear programs. So I think that is important, but I think we need to the P-5 have a special responsibility as the countries with the, the largest numbers of nuclear weapons, certainly the U.S. and Russia, that is that is definitely the case, to provide some leadership and be role models in, in moving forward to a world without the dangers of nuclear weapons. And they need to find other mechanisms for bringing those four out uh, outliers, if you will, into some sort of a nuclear arms control regime. Dr. Gibbons?
2: I would agree. It's important to note that these states that are outside the treaty. And I add, we know the four that have nuclear weapons. South Sudan is the fifth state that is outside the MPT. They're not a nuclear weapon state and they're a new state, but they're the the other kind of outlier within the MPT regime. I think if we think long-term about the treaty, you know, as, as Ambassador Burke said, this is a dynamic treaty and that dynamism is, I think, part of the reason it's been sustained for 50 years And what I mean by that is that when there are perceived weaknesses in the treaty, when there are loopholes, when things are discovered, when cheaters have been discovered, the regime has been able to, the international community, I should say, has been able to come together and kind of make improvements. And so I think we can look at this regime as kind of a long sequence of different agreements that hopefully gets us closer to a goal. And eventually one of those steps, or maybe it's many steps actually, in that sequence will be figuring out how to work with India, Pakistan, Israel, North Korea, and any other states that are outside the treaty at that time, if there are any, to figure out a way that they can make legally binding commitments. I think it's probably not realistic to think that the NPT, as it exists, the treaty text, is going to be amended. I think that process would be next to impossible. But I do think it's possible to have additional political agreements that could bring those countries closer into the norms and commitments of the NPT.
0: Are you saying that it's not anywhere within the realm of expectation that these other nuclear states would ever sign the NPT?
2: Well, if they wanted to join, they could only join as non-nuclear weapon states. So they would have to disarm and then join because the treaty is explicit that the only nuclear weapon states were those that had exploded a nuclear device before January 1st, 1967. And so that was five countries. That happen to be the P5. Some people call them the N5 for the NPT context. And so, yes, they they would not, as the treaty is written, they would not be able to join as nuclear weapon states.
0: Ambassador Burke, as special special representative of the president, you participated in the 2010 review conference, or RevCon, as it's known. Can you tell our listeners uh, the purpose and the importance of RevCon as it relates to NPT?
1: well yes i i did have I, I did have the honor of participating in twenty ten I also participated in the review and extension conference in nineteen ninety five I also worked on the nineteen eighty five conference but the ninety five conference in two thousand and ten were particularly important the The treaty itself provides for a review conference of the parties to be held every five years if the parties decide to meet and they have decided to meet every five years and they do now I think when you look at this it's an opportunity for the the state's parties to get together to review how well the treaty is being implemented. And, And I would go back to Dr. Gibbons' comment. I think the fact that the parties are so eager to engage in a discussion of how well the treaty is working and what needs to be done to improve its implementation also is reflective of the support for the treaty and the desire to keep it going. And so the review conference and then the preparatory committee meetings that take place in the preceding years are an important and a highly visible opportunity for the parties to have a let-it-all-hang-out kind of discussion about how things are going on all of the aspects of the treaty, on disarmament, on peaceful uses, and on nonproliferation. And I would come back again to the point that the non-nuclear weapon states, which are the overwhelming majority, this is an opportunity for them to hold the nuclear weapon states accountable for their progress in meeting their obligations under Article 6 of the treaty, which provides for halting the arms race and and nuclear disarmament. The nuclear weapon states are also making the non-nuclear weapon states accountable for their actions as well, but the tradition of this, and in my experience, the focus tends to be very heavily on the disarmament component of the NPT, and that's where the, the most vigorous debates often take place. And so that's the important thing. I, and I, I think you know these multilateral conferences for any treaty are an opportunity to take stock of how well the treaty is working, whether it needs some fixing, whether the parties need to step up more aggressively in their area. And these are largely political events, and they can and they have on, on on some occasions produced concrete results and recommendations that sometimes are implemented and sometimes are not. And so that's the the ebb and flow of this process.
0: And how important is consensus? I know that you worked on the consensus statement for the, the last time around. I can't imagine that that's ever easy. But how important is it to, to try to get some consensus? In multilateral diplomacy, it's it's sort of tradition
1: that a big multilateral conference should produce some sort of a consensus report of results, conclusions, recommendations, or whatever. It's just a tradition in, in my experience, and it's, I have long experience in multilateral diplomacy. But it is very difficult, and it is increasingly difficult, I think, in the NPT context, because now we have, you know, as you pointed out at the beginning, there are 190 parties, most of whom attend these conferences so that's a lot of states they there are a number of different agendas political and otherwise that are brought to bear and the number of issues that are being discussed in a review conference today is exponentially larger than it was when i first got into the business back in the 80s so just i was i always say i was never good at math but i just know that Statistically, the chance of having all of these issues come together in a, you know, a common statement is probably very, very slim. And so I think you have to look at the conferences when there's been consensus as extremely um, that that's really important because it showed there was political will to go beyond the all or nothing kind of approach that tends to characterize these multilateral conferences. And I am a strong supporter of multilateral diplomacy. I I believe strongly that the problems that we have now, the global problems, be it nuclear disarmament, nonproliferation, environment, health, require global solutions. And that means that many, many countries need to get together to work out you know, a solution to it. But that doesn't mean that some might not have the political will to have a particular result at that point. And I would also add the fact that some states see consensus as the only measure of success, which I think is false. And others see failure to achieve consensus more in their interest, as long as they're not blamed for the failure. So that's a dynamic I think that we find often in review conferences.
0: And there was supposed to be a review conference this year, uh, 2020. But Like a lot of things, COVID-19 has led to it being postponed. How important is it to get it back on the schedule as soon as possible?
1: Well, let me me take a crack at that. The conference got canceled because of COVID, and, and that, of course, makes sense. Everything has been canceled. And the new dates that have been proposed for the conference, because my understanding is these are the only dates that currently were available on the UN calendar, which is very busy, as you might know are January 4th to 29, 2021. Now, if the conference is held during those dates, there is the potential for it to occur during a United States presidential transition. That's that's a possibility. And that would pose its own set of challenges for the United States to have one administration at the beginning and a second at the other. If there's no change in administrations, then it's not an issue. But I I think those dates, I would say, watch this space because that presumes that the situation will permit a mass gathering of states in a single place. And I don't, if I were a betting person, I'm not sure I would bet on that for next January, um, personally. Dr. Gibbons, anything I- to add? I'm not
2: sure how it's going to go. I, do, I have heard people talk about it working virtually, which I think it's really too bad. I mean, as I said before, this treaty has been around for 50 years. And so 2020, the review conference was not just a time to... You know, reflect on the treaty and think ahead. It was a time to celebrate 50 years of this treaty. And I think that's a real accomplishment. And so having the review conference postponed, having it potentially meeting in a virtual capacity, I think is just is, it's just unfortunate that that sort of celebratory aspect can't be brought up. Because I do think because there are so many challenges right now and divisions, it would be a nice time for all the members to kind of reflect on what has been accomplished to date um, and what the international community has been able to do.
1: And, and I agree with Rebecca on that. I think it will be unfortunate, but it's also entirely possible that there might be a decision to to move it again. And I, you know, we neither Dr. Gibbons or I are intimately involved right now in that. But, you know, these dates, the date's been postponed. It could be postponed again. I have no way of knowing on that. And in any case, While there is a postponement, if it's to January or some other date, hopefully the parties are focusing on the opportunities that are presented by this delay and are trying to use that time constructively. And I have I have read that there are virtual meetings occurring even now, and it would be helpful if these meetings could help to address some of the issues in advance of the actual convening of the conference preferably in person, but virtual, so that they could get to the, you know, to the real issues. I don't know, I'm not privy to those discussions, and I I don't know how that's going. But this delay provides real opportunities if parties want to take advantage of it.
0: Let me ask you about the goal of disarmament, which is the goal of the NPT, but there are those states that have been critical and say that the disarmament process is not moving fast enough, and there are those who would say that the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, which is commonly known as the BAN Treaty, actually was created because the NPT was not doing enough. Dr. Gibbons, how does the BAN Treaty movement change the nonproliferation environment? I think that, that's a really
2: good question that is still, the answer is is still playing out before us, but I'll try to give you some thoughts on that. One thing I'd say is I do think that the ban treaty movement and the humanitarian movement that came before it, where, where there was a focus on kind of educating leaders about the effects of nuclear weapons on communities, on bodies, on the climate, all sorts of things. I do think that that effort has educated many people about the effects of nuclear weapons. And I think particularly in governments that are non-nuclear that hadn't thought about this and were were part of conferences to talk about these effects, I think, I think that was a positive, a positive effect. I would say um, that I assume that nuclear weapons are rarely considered by most members of the public, especially in non-nuclear weapon states, but even in nuclear weapon states. And so I think it it's always beneficial if more people are educated on these issues. I think we lost a lot of, you know, with the end of the Cold War, um, we haven't, as a public, kind of thought about these things. So that's one positive effect. Of course, the ban treaty has led to disagreements within the MP2 context with the nuclear weapons states. I think this this debate and the back and forth has largely been more contentious than it needed to be. Some U.S. officials and officials from other P5 countries, in my opinion, have been over the top in being pejorative and derogatory in the way they speak about the ban They say things like it's, or they have said things like it's fundamentally unserious. They're unrealistic. They engage in magical thinking. This is just divisive virtue signaling. And I think the problem here is that this not only alienates the band supporters, the added supporters, but it also potentially alienates allies who may either be sympathetic to the band themselves or have publics that are sympathetic to the band. And I think this this kind of division that I think both sides play into sometimes does risk future cooperation with the MPT. There's a lot of things that still need to be figured out in the MPT. There's a lot of ways that the MPT could be strengthened. And I think if this is just another thing for the parties to be divided over, then that's unfortunate. But I would say, I think what we've seen in the the prep comms is that there hasn't been as much of a focus and that this issue hasn't been as divisive as I think people anticipated that it would. And I assume that's partly because There was so much criticism towards the ban movement that it was going to undermine the NPT, that the parties in favor of the ban have gone out of their way to make sure that it doesn't undermine the NPT. And they've wanted to show that they still are very supportive of the NPT, even if they also support the ban treaty.
0: If I could follow up, you mentioned the U.S. and the other nuclear states uh, have not actively engaged with the ban treaty. What would it take for them to possibly do so? Or is that even necessary?
2: Well, I think... To answer that question, we need to go back a little bit in the history of this movement. There were, in 2013 and 14, over those two years, there were three different conferences on the humanitarian impact of nuclear weapons. These were conferences that each one had more states participating. I think the first one, which was in uh, Oslo, Norway in March of 2013, had about 120 states and it went up from there. Those were conferences that were aimed to educate people about the effects of nuclear weapons. They would bring experts in, doctors in. They would talk about how, you know, nuclear weapons and the radiation affects reproductive health, how it could affect farming and the environment and long-term effects. And so the first conference, as I said, was held by Norway, a NATO ally. And the U.S. and the rest of the P5 put out a press statement or a a document explaining why they were not going to participate. And in a sense, they argued that they thought that this effort was going to be distracting from larger efforts to work on nuclear nonproliferation and disarmament. I think that was a mistake for the United States. I think looking back, I think the U.S. should have been there, particularly because it was this was hosted in an allied nation. Um, I think the U.S. put itself in a box with the other P5 when I think in many ways the U.S. has a better story to tell about nuclear weapons, um, about its transparency. And so I think that was the place in time where the U.S. would have had better luck in terms of engaging. What ended up happening is U.S. sent a delegation to the last of these conferences, which was in December of 2014 in Vienna. And I think at that point, there were many people involved that were, they had learned so much about the devastating impact of nuclear weapons that many, not all, because it took a few years, but many states And their delegations were on board to consider a treaty to ban nuclear weapons. And I think at that point, I mean, it's arguable and we can't, we don't know the counterfactual, but I think it's possible that it was, it was kind of too late for the U.S. to have more say in that. Of course, there was also a meeting at the UN on disarmament or several meetings in 2016 that the U.S. didn't participate in and the U.S. didn't participate in the negotiations in 2017 of this treaty. So there were other places where the U.S. could have tried to have, have a role. But I think by just separating, the U.S. tried to separate itself from the beginning, in my mind, to try to undermine the legitimacy of these efforts, it lost that kind of ability to, to have have a say.
0: Ambassador Burke, anything to add?
1: The only thing I would add is I agree with Dr. Gibbons 100 percent. And I was actually still active duty at the beginning of this humanitarian process because it was an issue that came up at the first PREPCOM for the 2015 NPT conference and I was still leading the delegation at that time. I will just say personally, I thought it was a mistake not to go to these meetings. I thought we forfeited the narrative. If, you know, I, I didn't think that the United States should be afraid of engaging in a debate. If we thought our positions were, if our position had merit, we should be prepared to present them and defend them. And I think we lost the opportunity and we also lost, I think, some leadership role in, in this effort as well. And I also agree with her comments at the beginning. The commentary about this was so negative and the denigration of the negotiators and the supporters of this initiative I thought was wholly inappropriate and not in keeping with the diplomacy, and I will, I will let it stand. I, I would say now I think we've got a treaty that's emerged, and it's a few parties short of entry into force. But it's a treaty that that has a number of serious flaws. And I don't know that we would have participated in it. I don't think we would have, but I think we should have certainly participated in the first meetings on humanitarian consequences to hear what others had to say and to hear what their concerns would be. I think that's the thing a responsible world
0: leader should do. That's my, my personal view. Let me shift the conversation just a bit. The goal of this series, the Smart Women Pony Pathbreakers series, is to foster conversations between established nuclear scholars and next-gen and now-gen scholars. And I want to ask each of you about your start in this field and how it's different now. Perhaps, Ambassador Burke, we can start with you on that.
1: Yeah, let's start with the old person, and, and I will be happy to, to to do this. I would say that I literally fell into arms control and nonproliferation as a career because, you know, at the time I was, you know, in college and graduate school, you know, national security was an issue, but it wasn't as big of an issue as it is now. And there weren't as many, there weren't the opportunities. And there weren't, I would just say, mentors and and I think that is the critical piece right now. And when I joined the US Arms Control and Disarmament Agency after spending I think 8 years in the Office of the Secretary of Defense, that's when I found the issue that would kind of, you know, light a fire under me for the rest of my career and it was it was on the job training. So it, it you know, at that time you were doing more you would get a job, you'd have work with good people and you would learn you'd learn the the craft, you'd learn the subject matter and the craft. But I, I think at that time, I, I had mentors, but they were not characterized as mentors at the time. So I was fortunate to work for some extraordinary people. Dr. Lewis Dunn is the person who brought me into ACTA. Shayla Buckley was my boss at the Pentagon. And I realize now that they were mentors to me, although at the time, they were just very supportive supervisors. And so I think I've seen this, I've seen the nonproliferation portfolio evolve dramatically over the course of my career and then beyond that. You know, in the days when I joined this, the big issue was U.S.-Soviet arms control and nonproliferation was sort of there in the corner, mostly because it was less of a problem. It was the U.S.-Soviet Cold War and the, you know, mutual assured destruction that people were concerned about. Once the Cold War ended, I saw many of my arms control colleagues Decide that they needed to add non proliferation to their their portfolio because now the the focus was on that, and so i 've seen that change, and also the number of countries we were dealing with back in the '80s and, and and so forth where we had many threshold countries that we no longer have argentina brazil south Africa so they were they were took up a lot of time, but now they are part of the regime and have their own challenges, but they are now fully part of the regime. In fact, Argentina, they are providing the the president for the review conference. So it's a a very different global landscape than it was, and it's a much more complicated global landscape. So I think the challenges that the now generation and the next generation are facing are that the toughest problems are still there, and it's much more complex because there are many more moving parts. And so thank God we have all of these Incredibly passionate and smart young folks getting into the field because I think it's a much more complex problem set now. Dr. Gibbons? So I like to
2: tell my students that I was a psychology and brain sciences major in college, and that's because I went to college thinking that I wanted to become a psychologist. And I say that because I want people to know that their major is not somehow their destiny and that you can always change directions. And so I was in college during 9 11, during the beginning of the Iraq War, and that. Those events kind of shifted my focus. I became a war and peace studies minor. I remember debating with friends about the wisdom of the Iraq war and the dining hall. And so I began to think more about uh, doing something international. That led me to go abroad after college and I taught elementary school in the Republic of the Marshall Islands and I taught within the bikini community. So this very small island called Kili. Is one of the places where the, the Bikini community was displaced because of U.S. nuclear testing in the Marshall Islands, and so I taught English and math and social studies, and in social studies, I taught my students about a little bit about the Cold War and the history to try to explain, you know, why are they living on this island and why are they not living in this beautiful atoll, Bikini Atoll, that they had heard about from their parents and grandparents, and so. I had to do a lot of research of my own to get to, to really teach them. And so that sort of was the beginning, I think, of my interest in nuclear issues. I ended up going to Georgetown for a master's in security studies. And I was really lucky after I graduated. Um, I had worked as an RA for two years for Professor Kai Barth, who's at Georgetown now in Qatar. And he is a has studied physics and history, and we spent two years studying the Iran nuclear program. So I was really excited to work, to continue working on nuclear issues in my professional career. I ended up getting a job with SAIC, where I was a contractor working for the Air Force in their arms control shop. So I was able to work on things like the additional protocol. You know, we helped backstop New START negotiations. That was one of the first places where I tracked um, the ban treaty movement, from that office. And I just got really interested in nuclear arms control. And that, that was really a great office to work in. We had a supportive boss. And during that period is when I started a PhD, so I could even more deeply study study these issues. I did want to say I think would be considered mid-career in this field at this point. And I think the time when I, in my 20s and 30s, have been super fortunate that there have been so many efforts to try to teach young people about nuclear issues. So Pony, I was a, a Pony scholar. I was part of the mid-career group. I was able to participate in the Public Policy Nuclear Threats boot camp, the Nuclear Studies Research Initiative. I received a fellowship from the Stanton Foundation. So I really felt like there were so many opportunities for me um, to study and learn from people like Susan, like Ambassador Burke, who've worked on this for uh, many years.
0: Are there generational differences in how nuclear nonproliferation is viewed? Dr. Gibbons, I'll let you start and then we'll go to Ambassador Burke.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good question. I, I don't see as many generational differences with the generation that came before me. I mean, I think there is, of course, the concern that there's always people saying we need to get out of Cold War thinking. So I think the challenge there is we learned a lot during the Cold War and we learned important lessons. And so the challenge for us is to think about what is relevant and what isn't relevant, right? And so maybe we're more open to thinking about what's not relevant because we... Our formative years were not during that time. What I see as a bigger difference though is that the people, the kind of next generation after me, which I have just been so impressed with, with their energy, with the way they have been creative and towards in certain terms of addressing these issues and thinking differently about them. I think, I think the fact that they are sort of tech natives where they grew up with email, with Twitter, with social media really shows. I think there is a difference between this next generation in terms of their savviness. And sort of using these different modalities than there is in my generation or the one above me, yeah, I've I've met so many young people. Whether it's at Pony Girl Security at Basic, JJ, the James Martin Center at FAS, there's just so many initiatives out there. I think that that young people are are kind of saying we're here and we want a voice. And I think I think that is has been really exciting, and I've been really impressed, Ambassador
1: Burke. I have to share Dr. Gibbon's view on the, on the next generation coming up, because I think I served as a mentor when I was working, but since I've retired, I have been mentoring mostly young women through the Scoville Peace Fellowship Program, through the James Martin Center, and, and I'm overwhelmed by the interest, the intellect, and the real commitment to working on the issues that I've spent my, I spent my whole career working on. And I think we have to find a way to channel that uh, talent into, uh, I'd love to see some of it channeled into public service, uh, which I think desperately needs the best and brightest and into the, the non-governmental world, into academia, which is uh, what Rebecca's doing. So I, I think that that's, that's a real change. And I, I also, as she talked about her career, The opportunities, um, you know, the Pony program and these other things, these were not the, there, there were not these opportunities I have to say, and I'm not, you know, complaining about this when I was coming up through the ranks. I mean, I did my graduate work at Georgetown, got a master's in security studies, but I did it at night when I was working in the office of the secretary of defense. And uh, because I was working and I, you know, I had to go at night because I couldn't afford to just, to just go. There weren't the, the kinds of programs out there, in my experience, that I could avail myself of. I remembered asking to go to the National War College when I was in ACTA, and I was always told, this isn't a good time for you to be away you know, and I had this feeling that, okay, well, if I leave, you know, then they'll realize I, you know, this uh, imposter syndrome, they'll realize I don't do anything. And so I just stayed. And so I never took those kind of opportunities that others of my colleagues did. And I, I think some of it is women in the field. And I think the young women coming up have so much confidence and, and so much confidence in their ability and are so energetic that hopefully they won't encounter this, this sort of thing. And I would also say that looking ahead, as I said, the toughest problems are still there, and they've become tougher over the years i don't won't say intractable because I'd like to think that they could be they could be dealt with, but I also think this technological era that we 're in, whether it's AI or 3D printing or cyber, these are all technologies that are going to impact on the non proliferation regime on the NPT and on and on arms control and this next generation and the now generation, I think with Rebecca too, they are in a much better position to grapple with these challenges. And thank goodness. And I I think that as I was just mentioned, Dr. Heather Williams recently issued a report at a King's College where she talks about emerging technologies impacting prospects for nuclear disarmament and the and should be part of NPT. I haven't read the report yet. I've downloaded it, but I think the, this is very true. So the world is, is changing faster technologically than we can even keep up with. And that's going to require the best and the brightest minds. And, and I see them coming up through the ranks now. And some of them are, you know, with Dr. Gibbons' case, they're already there and we need to tap into this talent and this commitment.
0: And Heather Williams participated in this Smart Women Pony Pathbreaker series. Let me ask you one final question. What questions do you want to ask each other?
2: Okay, so I'll start there and I'll ask a question to Ambassador Burke. But before I do, I just I want to thank you, Ambassador Burke, for your leadership in this area. I realized as we were talking that I met you 10 years ago when you had just led the successful MPT review conference, and I have just loved learning from you over the years, and I appreciate your support and your mentorship of, of women, and so my question for you is:
1: As you look back at your government career, what are you most proud of? <laughs> now, that's a really that's a really tough question. I would have to say this is kind of a cop out. Well, there there are two answers to that. One, when I look back at my career, I don't have a single proudest accomplishment. I am so proud that I had an opportunity to. Be involved in two of the most important and most successful review conferences, 95 and 2010, and that I was able to wrap up my career serving as the special representative of President Obama for nuclear nonproliferation. It was just kind of the perfect circle, you know, to come back. So I'd actually left nonproliferation for a number of years before that, and I was brought back into it. And so I'm just very grateful to have been able to participate and support um, U.S. policy in preventing the further spread of nuclear weapons and to see a number of successes, you know, not elimination, but a number of successes. And then I also have to say on a personal note, when I look back over my career, I am so grateful that my two children (laughs) grew up to be productive, good citizens and successful in their own lives, because as a working mother, Rebecca and I have talked about this, that is a challenge that we don't talk about a lot, but while you're doing all these things on the public stage, there's, you know, I have a, I had a terrific husband at home, and I had two great kids, and so when I look at that, I'm, I'm grateful that all of that worked out well too. And I hope I can say the same thing someday. I'm glad you remember. I was trying to remember Rebecca 10 years ago. We did meet and we met through the NPT and we have stayed in touch over the years with the NPT as a main connection. And so I am, you know, this is the kind of, you know, relationship you have and friendship you have through this business that kind of makes life much more rich. And Ambassador Burke, do you have a question for Dr. Gibbons? Well, I was going to ask her, because she is the now generation, and she has done such incredible work on this and some extraordinary writing, and I wanted to ask her, as you're surveying the nonproliferation landscape, what do you think are the greatest challenges for the NPT community to grapple with in the coming years to ensure the integrity of the NPT regime? You know, what, what, what's, what do we need to do for another 50 years?
2: That is a tough question. There is so much. So I mean I think we know we have this disagreement over disarmament. We know we have the challenge with Iran, maybe even a bigger challenge with North Korea. But I think I think I'll highlight another challenge that's maybe bigger picture, and that's so I in my current scholarship I am looking at the success of the process of building the nuclear non-proliferation regime over these past fifty years. So with the NPT, but all these additional agreements and activities that also add to this architecture that we have that tries to help keep us safe from nuclear weapons and nuclear material. And so as I've looked back at the history of this regime, what really sticks out to me is the leadership role of the United States. And so we know, of course, that the U.S. and the Soviet Union cooperated to draft the NPT, to draft the initial document. But I, I see the U.S. as being primary in terms of trying to promote these the universalization and I think that's actually really interesting that the U.S. has wanted these treaties to be universal, even for countries that have, you know, tiny microstates that have no interest in developing any sort of nuclear infrastructure. The U.S. still has cared and spent diplomatic energy in getting these countries on board. And so that's one thing, the universalization. The U.S. has also tried to lead these adaptations where weakness, when weaknesses were discovered. So the U.S. spearheaded the nuclear suppliers group in the mid-1970s the U.S. played a a really important leadership role, I would argue, in getting the additional protocol safeguards agreement negotiated in the 1990s after there were revelations of Iraq's nuclear program, the program that was discovered as a result of the Gulf War. And so to me, I I can't look at the history of the MPT in this broader regime and not say that it was necessary to have this kind of superpower backing, both to promote adaptations, universalization, and also honestly to try to bring the international community together to punish states when they're not abiding or negotiate with states when they're not abiding by the treaty. And so I have a real concern that as we enter this more multipolar world where the U.S. might lose some of its leadership and and also might lose some of its leadership due to things that have happened in the, the current administration, that the U.S. won't really be in the same position that it has been for 50 years to be able to kind of bolster this agreement. And I don't see Russia taking on that role. I think China is maybe the best candidate, but I don't, I don't think that they're necessarily in a place to take on that. It's just, I mean, when I look back at these archival documents, it's just day in and day out, sending cables, having meetings. And so I'm not sure that, that people fully appreciate the amount of work that has gone into building this regime. And so I think one of the biggest challenges is this risk that we might not have a state Willing or able to to play that role in the next fifty years, but it's something that we should be working on and
0: thinking about. Ambassador Burke, Dr. Gibbons, what a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for participating in the Smart Women Pony Pathbreakers series. Thank you
1: so much. Thank you so much.
0: Subscribe to the Smart Women Smart Power Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to good content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at SmartWomen and I'm at Beverly Kirk. Thanks for listening. See you next time.